0: Please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 21. I'm sure it seems, as we've studied this gospel for a long time now, that uh, we don't move very quickly. So it's probably going to, uh, the whiplash will shock you today as we jump forward. Matthew 21 begins with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. I mark that because you need to know that now that prediction that he'd made, I'm I'm going up to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to be crucified, is about to come true. We are now into the stage of what is we call Holy Week, that last week of the life of Jesus. I'm not treating this text specifically because we did look at it in the, from this very text on last Palm Sunday. There are two things I'll just mark really quickly that happened. Jesus cleanses the temple... And drives out the money changers and merchandisers who were profaning the place of worship and prayer, and then there's a cursing of the fig tree, and those would be worthy things to deal with, but I'm just moving right beyond them. I'm going to look today at the last part of chapter 21, a parable that Jesus tells that we call the parable of the tenants, or in some cases the parable of the wicked tenants, which certainly is a description that fits them. Listen to God's Word, Matthew 21, beginning at verse 33. The Lord is speaking. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? Why, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, the people replied and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the Lord has done this? It is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you And given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's holy word. It speaks to us with the voice of the same spirit who first inspired it long ago. My wife and I have been interested that my son, Ben, recently became a landlord by purchasing, with cooperation from another of his brothers, a four-unit small apartment building near his home in Pittsburgh. We were, I guess, amused is the right word, to hear the tale of his first two days as a landlord. Immediately after closing on this building and it officially being under his caretakership and ownership, The hot water tank burst in the basement, and there was a minor flood. Well, that was easy to tend to, but then just as that was being tended to, the fire engines came racing down the street, and there was a fire in the building right next door, and Ben was afraid it might threaten his property. It did not, but it at least gave some scary moments. And then he learned that one of his tenants is behind in his rent. And my comment on the first 48 hours of my son being a landlord was, welcome to the joys of being a landlord, son. The landlord-tenant relationship has always, in human history, been fraught with all kinds of problems and tensions that cut both ways. And today we see in an extreme example, a fictional example, yet one that, gives us penetrating truth, how God teaches a lesson through this relationship. At the opening of Matthew 21, Jesus had triumphantly entered Jerusalem. That was the event, of course, that we celebrate every Palm Sunday when the people were acclaiming him as he rode in on a donkey's colt and the palms were waving and the Alleluias were given to the one who came in the name of the Lord. But immediately in this chapter of Matthew, Jesus began to do things on Monday and Tuesday of that last week of his life that surprised everybody. First, he forcefully cleansed the temple plaza, the the outer big courtyard around the temple, driving out people who were doing business there and merchandising in unscrupulous ways, reminding them that the worship Of Israel was corrupted by this kind of practice. And then he cursed a barren fig tree. That's a curious incident. The fig tree is a very well-known. There are two well-known symbols of Israel in this chapter. One is the fig tree. The other is a grapevine. Both of them in Bible history represent Israel. And Jesus cursed this fig tree that had leaves on it and looked like it should have had fruit for having no fruit. In other words, he was putting a curse on the nation of Israel for breaking covenant with God and not repenting and not abiding in faith, looking to him. So here's the tremendous irony. Jesus enters Jerusalem as Israel's Messiah, acclaimed by Israel, And he immediately goes on the attack. And who is he attacking? They thought it would be Rome. the hated oppressors that he would attack. And here he was attacking the establishment of Israel for spiritual apostasy against her covenant God. Knowing that he was close to death, knowing that it was only days away, Jesus told the parable we have read today about the wicked tenants in God's vineyard. Now, sometimes with parables, we're not supposed to equate every character or everything in it to something else in an allegorical fashion, but you can pretty legitimately do that with this parable. And I would think a a well-educated, intelligent child could tell us What's going on here? Who represents what in this parable? It's not very hard. God, of course, is the landlord. He has built a vineyard, a place that he expects can be cultivated under his ownership. He gave it every advantage provided for it to bear fruit. That was the nation of Israel. And then he sends messengers. Those were, of course, the prophets of the Old Testament who came reminding God's people of his message and what was expected from them. And then we saw how they reacted to those prophets. And then he's finally sent the ultimate messenger, his own beloved son, the heir to ownership of the vineyard. And the piercing indictment that is here on rebellious human sin is an obvious message. It was directed at the religious leaders who stood before him. In fact, they were probably the people who answered his question in verse 41 when he said, what should happen to these people? It was probably the religious leaders who answered in verse 41 and said, why, those wretches should have a wretched end. And as soon as they said it, perhaps they understood that they were speaking about themselves. For here we see how these people stood right before Jesus and heard this truth about God's wonderful mercy and patient approaches to men. And what they went out of that or went away from that with was an attempt to arrest him, according to the end of this passage, because they wanted to kill him. This parable teaches about the character of God and the character of human beings as well. It shows us a malignant hatred that's in the breast and the minds of human beings. Not just Israelites, not just Israelite leaders, although they were the particular representatives to whom it was directed. I think at a minimum this parable asks us to observe three things. We should first of all, as we read this and hear it, marvel at God's long-suffering mercies. Secondly, we ought to recoil in horror from humanity's plot to kill God. And thirdly, we should take our stand in faith upon Christ, lest we be judged and even crushed by Him. I'd like to look at those three points with you today. First of all, marvel at God's long-suffering. Now the experts in these things say from ancient times and methods of horticulture that if you were starting out with a vineyard, and of course that is a very common kind of farming in, in that part of the world, you go there, you see groves of uh, olives or grapes or all kinds of fruit-bearing plants and trees and vines. It's said that it takes about four years. If you're starting with new land and you're, you're getting seedlings, and you put up the structures on which the vines grow, and you expect those vines to grow and grapes to come. It's about four years from initial seedlings to a first harvest of grapes. Well, we see a man who's done everything right. We assume he purchased good land. He did everything he could to fence it in against marauders. He built a tower where equipment could be kept, where a lookout could watch for anyone who might be coming trying to disrupt things or steal, he gave this land every advantage. Then he went away. He was an absentee landlord. And he put farmers in charge, and they presumably worked hard for four years in the hot sun, planting and pruning and tending and caring, so that these vines would would bear something. Well, you can imagine with them doing all the hard work for four years that they would begin to think in a certain manner of implied ownership, hey, we're the ones doing the work here. We're the ones who are, for whom thanks will be owed for producing this crop. What about this landlord? Why should he get something to profit from what we are doing? Remarkably, we know about the temple of Jerusalem, and Jesus was teaching that particular week and day in the courts of the Jerusalem temple. There was actually a place over one of the great entrances to the temple, a, what we would call a freeze, frieze, F-R-I-E-Z-E, a, a, a raised relief panel that over the door had a grapevine carved into this frieze covered with gold. Because, again, as I mentioned a minute ago, a grapevine was the symbol of Israel. So here over the temple gate was the symbol of the exact thing Jesus was talking about within view of that possibly. And those who heard him would have surely thought about Isaiah chapter 5, a classic chapter you could look at, which describes Israel as a vineyard. And it describes how God had selected it, worked on it, given it every advantage, protected it, and then expected that his vineyard that he had so labored over would produce spiritual fruit to him. Isaiah five four has a Saying that where the Lord says, What more could I do for my vineyard than what I had done? I gave it every advantage. All the fertilizer, all the cuttings and prunings at the proper time, all the watering, everything was done. Paul picks up the same theme in Romans chapter 9, verse 4, when he lists the advantages of Israel as that special nation, that covenant nation loved by God. And he says about Israel, of which he was a member, of course, of that nation. Paul said theirs were the covenants, the law, the divine glory, the temple, the patriarchs, the human ancestry of Christ. Everything that God was doing channeled through them, he said. And yet the Bible's verdict is that none of those abundant privileges, by the time of Jesus appearing in history, had ripened into the fruit of true and lasting faith, or repentance and recognition of individual or corporate or national sin, or a life aligned with obedience to the Scriptures and of true worship, all the things that God longed to taste, the sweet wine He wanted to drink from His chosen vine, He was denied. Now, I think there's a generalizing that can be made from this passage as well to have this chapter of Matthew 21 remind us how much God generally does to provide in what we would call common grace to, to all men, to make uh, give us advantages in this world. He gives us a beautiful world that even on a winter day, you look out and it's, it's beautiful. He's given us families and relationships to nurture us. He's given us protections that we probably don't even think of, times when He spared us from evil or harm that could have come to us, and we didn't even know that we were being protected. And God says to individuals and to nations other than Israel, where's the fruit I have a right to expect from your life? And he doesn't ask that just once either. He asks it again and again. Many different ways, many different messages, sermons, Whatever studies of the Word of God come to us and the question occurs to us, my life should be fruitful. My life should be obedient. I should be more prayerful. I should be trusting God more. Where's the fruit? And God patiently asks. Martin Luther stood back from it all one time and he said, if I were God and the world treated me as it regularly treats him, I would smash the planet to pieces. That was Luther's judgment of how humanity would have enraged him enough not to patiently persevere. Well, thankfully, Martin Luther is not God, and thankfully we're not God. Micah chapter seven, verse 18 says, "God delights in showing mercy. Mercy, not bringing upon us what we deserve. He holds back with infinite patience over centuries. From bringing the fiery trials and the final condemnations on individuals and nations that they have richly deserved. I, it seems to me that the Bible is the source or origin point for an interesting vocabulary word, the word long-suffering. It's used in the Scripture to describe God primarily. Second Peter 3.9 says the Lord is long-suffering towards us. He's suffering with us, but he's doing it long-term and patiently because he's, it says, not willing that any should perish. That doesn't mean none are going to perish. But it means that when they do, the Lord has waited and waited and given them opportunity and given them opportunity. If you would ask any businessman, company owner, employer, to be long-suffering the way the Lord is, you would soon find that it would not be possible. Let's say that you were asking that employer to be long-suffering with an employee who is habitually late, very lazy, does half the work that anyone else does, and it's sloppy work when he does it. The employer would be watching that, of course, and eventually he would come to a stopping point. He would be exasperated, and he would say, look, I cannot afford to take any more of this. Neither I nor my company can accept this kind of negligence and bad habits and poor work. You're fired. By contrast, we're told the character of God is the epitome of long-suffering mercy and patience. And he shows it in this parable. Now, we know that the United States of America never has been God's covenant nation in the same way that Israel is. We should not make that equation because we're not. But nevertheless, where in the modern history of nations has there been a a land, a place, a people like America, which God has allowed to have such favorable circumstances? So many freedoms, so much abundance of a way of life that can not only, at least for many, support the basics of life, not that we have no poor, of course, but but for many, many people who have not just the basics but, but much beyond to give to the causes of God. America has been basically the treasury of the modern missions movement. America abounds. Go into your car and flip your radio dial, and still, at almost any time of the day, you can find some representation of the Word of God coming forth, AM or FM. It may not be doctrinally sound, but this land abounds in the message of God. There's no gardener's prize rosebush that has ever had more fastidious horticultural care than the spiritual care that God has allowed the United States of America to have for the last 200-plus years. We would say, what more can the Lord do than what he has done? But we also look to the Scripture that says, to whom much is given, much is going to be required. And yet, people individually at least grumble upon hearing the idea that God asks from them repentance or a constant faith or a, a steady hope in Him in the midst of some bad circumstance or suffering or that He asks from them to honor His Sabbath day or think about His standards of a tithe to His work or being forgiving to others as they've been forgiven. And instead, they find themselves, their attitude is, how demanding is this God? How much he wants from me? What has he ever done for me? I've almost literally had people say that to me. What has God ever done for me? I hardly, I'm, I'm almost speechless. I don't know how to respond to that. Has God not fenced us in and protected us and spared us things that Christians and other nations face, death, suffering, imprisonment, and torture, just for naming the name of Christ? He's given us mercies before we were converted and came to him, and mercies every day since then. Do you find it strange that our long-suffering, patient, cultivating God should expect fruit in our lives? fruit in our churches, even in a manner of speaking, fruit from our nation. And does he find it? Just answer it at the personal level. Does he find it in you for all that he's invested? Well, secondly, Matthew 21, especially verses 35 to 39, ought to make us start to recoil from humanity's plot to assassinate God. You know the Old Testament tells how God's chosen nation was treated with so many benefits and when its prophets, when God's prophets came to remind them that they were turning in the wrong direction, when he came to declare the truths of a holy God and of the need of repentance and faith, how did they treat those prophets? Well, I'll give you just a glimpse. 2nd Chronicles 36 16 has a short summary. It says they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused. We know the historical record. The prophet Jeremiah was stoned to death. Zechariah was actually murdered in the temple of God. In the New Testament, Stephen was stoned. Paul was beheaded, and every one of the New Testament apostles, except apparently John, died a violent death for their faith. John seems to be the only one who died of old age. Hebrews 11.36 outlines the fate of people who spoke up for God and held his principles high and the truth of his gospel. It says they faced jeers and flogging. They were chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawed in two, and put to the sword, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. That's what Jesus was talking about with those who came to these tenants with the message of the truth of God. Now, we're inclined to hear this, and as we so often do, as we are able to stand back, you know, with a little bit of perspective, we say to ourselves, well, how absurd. How absolutely arrogant those people. What in the world possessed those people, those farmers, to think that they could move in for free? Yes, they worked hard. Of course they did. And they were allowed a a living wage, a fair wage from their work. And the farmer or the owner expected his share. But to imagine that they would begin to think they owed nothing to the owner. How could they think that way? And we're very indignant. Yet we also tend to take privileges and gifts of God's divine grace for granted and we start to turn them into our inalienable rights. We act as if we hold the title deed of our families, our jobs, our possessions, our church. We've gotten it all by our labors or our goodness or our behavior. And I find it not a rare thing at all that people are sort of quietly grinding their teeth to think that God owes them a better cut, a better deal than what he's dealt them in the life that they have. It's very interesting to look at the words in our text, and I think it can generate misunderstanding when we read this, again, fictional. This is a story. This landowner saying, they will respect my son. Maybe you want to say, what was wrong with the guy? He'd already had everybody he sent there either beat up or killed. What made him think they would respect the son? Well, we're not looking for this story to give us an exact likeness of God here. So don't misunderstand and think that God is somehow naive. Don't misunderstand and think that God the Father was sort of wringing his hands from a distance and saying, Oh, woe is me. You know, no appeal I've made, no prophet I've sent, nothing I've done has reached those people, those Israelites, my covenant nation. Why, I guess it's a desperate situation and it requires a desperate measure. Maybe my son can get their attention. No. God the Father was not surprised by the treatment his son received. He was not standing off hoping that maybe Jesus could go and tell some authoritative Lessons and teach in a way that would get people's attention and work some miracles, and everybody would sit up and say, Whoa, you know, this is the Son of God. We'd better respect Him and exalt Him and, and obey Him as our Lord. In fact, the Father sent His Son knowing He was going to the cross, knowing He was going to be thrown out of the vineyard how consistent that is with Hebrews that says that Christ was cast out of the city outside the city wall Romans 8:32 said God did not spare his own son that means Jesus didn't come on some fool's errand expecting to accomplish a better result than what he did no he came into history the scripture says as the lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world He came to an appointment with this hatred and to an appointment with the cross because by that alone there would be a solution worked out to resolve, to reconcile human hostility. What can we say about this hostility that despises and disdains the gracious and patient overtures of a living, merciful God? We read this here. When the tenants saw who was coming, they said, this is the heir. Let us kill him and take him and take the inheritance from him. Maybe they thought, you know, the son, one commentator speculates, well, they could have thought because they hadn't seen the landlord for a long time that maybe the old guy had died and this was his son coming in his place. And if they'd knocked the son off, there wouldn't be anybody left to own it. And so they would be by means of squatters rights, the owners of the vineyard. Well, that's one possible speculation of what was in their human minds. But it tells us, you see, a wider truth, a truth that goes way beyond Israelites and way beyond people in vineyards. It tells us about the human attempt to push the claims of God right out of our lives and what folly it is. Romans 8-7 says that the carnal mind, the carnal, unchanged mind, the mind of humanity unchanged by salvation is at enmity with God. We, in a word, hate God, and we want to extinguish his claims over us. The colonial American theologian Jonathan Edwards once wrote a lengthy essay that began being based on Romans 5.10, which, which has those words, "...while we were yet the enemies of God, we were reconciled to him by the death of his Son." Edward's essay was entitled, Men Are Naturally God's Enemies. And in that essay, he put forth three arguments, and, you know, they were long and would be tedious if I tried to enter into them, but just in a sentence for each. He said, first, man is naturally God's enemy because he never wants to come to God's defense when God is being attacked by other men. Secondly, man is naturally God's enemy because he dislikes the company of God. Thirdly, Edwards said, natural, unsaved man is God's enemy by the way that he perversely loves the deeds that God warns us are the most destructive and despises the deeds or the conduct that God says, this is good. Every one of us needs to face that theme of that essay, which wasn't of Jonathan Edwards' origin. It was biblical. Biblical. Every one of us needs to face the fact that there is a hatred of God in our spiritual DNA. We were not born loving God. We want to rule in God's place. We want to snatch His gifts for our own enrichment. And our anti-God nature has to be confessed, faced, laid down in acknowledgement at His feet. We need to tell Him, "Oh God, I am no better than these tenants. I'm astonished by them, but but that's me. That's the way I behave. And I know that I cannot receive your gracious forgiveness until I see that you sent your Son to die to achieve the lasting peace that would bring me together with you once again, not in hatred, but in love and faith and subservience. Finally today, our, our text takes a turn at, the, at verse 42, and quickly we need to look there, because it has the closing exhortation of Jesus that we must stand firm upon him, the Christ, or else we will, in the end, be crushed by him. And he changes the whole imagery. You see, he asks this question in verse 40, what should happen to these tenants, And the very people he was speaking against spoke up and said, why, they should have a wretched end. (laughs) And then just think of the silence after that because they were talking about themselves. And Jesus then turns them to the ancient scriptures, to Psalm 118. We used part of it as a call to worship this morning. He changes from thinking about a vineyard to another image of the Bible, the cornerstone, or it might be also called the capstone, like the keystone of an arch. The stone that determines the shape and literally the alignment and holds up a building. And he says, look, the choice stone that the builders of God's kingdom rejected is now the cornerstone. The whole building is aligned on it. Or the whole building is held up. The arch is held up by it, whichever way you choose to see this. And I think both are valid. 1 Peter 2 says the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone. And Jesus is saying, look, either you align with this cornerstone, you take your stand on this cornerstone and let your life be built from the dimension of this cornerstone, and he was it, or the day will come when it will fall on you with a crash and demolish your hopes of eternal life. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus is is speaking some pretty grim things in this last week. The cards were on the table. It was not a time to be soft. He was saying, there is no neutrality about me. If you hear about me as the final messenger of my Father, you must... Receive me as the cornerstone of the great building of God, or I will become a stone that will fall upon you like a meteor out of the sky. The priests and religious leaders knew exactly what he was saying, and he knew, they knew he was talking about them. And yet they continued in their contempt. They did not fear God. They did fear one thing, what the crowd thought of them. And so they knew they had to act secretly when they would take him so that they would not have an uprising on their hands. And there comes an announcement by Christ here that don't miss this, verse 43. It's very important because he says he's actually speaking to Israel as a nation here in verse 43. He says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. No longer is Israel going to be the exclusive, singular people of God. That's not to say no Israelites can ever know God in a saving way, but as a nation, the covenant nation is going to be wider now. It's going to be everyone who comes to Christ, who acknowledges the cornerstone, and who shows the fruit in their life of what God has planted and cultivated there. So we see God's long-suffering love here. We see humanity's astonishing refusal. We see God's plan for his son to die. There's a lot in this parable. And finally, we see the grim judgment that will come on those who rebelliously do not receive the divine remedy. One writer said our greatest privilege, this was his outline of the whole text, he said he he gave these three points. One point was our great privilege. What's that? To know the good news about the kingdom of God. The second point was our greatest sin. What's that? To reject the offer of the kingdom of God. And his third point was our greatest doom, which will come if the Christ who is ready to save has to fall upon someone with a crash. It does not have to be that way for you. If you will hear his voice, Jesus Christ is the heir of the promised blessings of God. He wants to give you by His cross as you embrace Him, take hold of Him in faith. He wants to give you a share in that kingdom of His if you'll embrace Him as your Lord. And my final appeal to you is the words of Psalm 2 today. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son lest you be destroyed in your way, for blessed are those who take their refuge in him. Father, we look to your grace, your mercy, the amazing way that you've withheld what we deserve for so long. Oh, God, give us a true forgiveness, a true repentance that seeks that forgiveness that you have made in the cross of Jesus. We do look to your Son, Father, help us to stand there secure in the knowledge that your long-suffering will bring us salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.